This message by Jeff Hodgson was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jeff serves as a pastor and bivocational elder at Cornerstone Church. We now have an amazing opportunity. Don't miss how significant it is what we get to now do. We are going to engage with the living God through His revealed Word. Consider the gift that this Bible is to you. God has promised that everything you need for life and godliness is contained within it. It's in these pages. For in these pages, he's telling us about himself. He's telling us about his grand intentions. He's telling us how he would have our lives be changed and what's in store for us. He is speaking to us if we have ears to hear. So I want to take time for us to thank God for this gift. And then we are going to enjoy His Word together. Let's pray. Oh God, how kind You are to us. How kind not only to give us this opportunity to gather together, to proclaim to one another as we are with each other here the truths about God, and now to be able to receive from You again. You are alive, and You are speaking to us. And so God, quicken our hearts that as we look at Your Word and consider what You are saying to us, that our lives would be transformed. Take our hearts, Lord God, and make them more like Christ. So that we would go forth from here and we would carry forth your character into a dark and unbelieving world. And we would glorify you, for you are worthy. So change us, Lord God, for your glory. We pray even in these brief moments. In the mighty name of Jesus, we come to the throne of grace. Amen. We are going to continue the series on Mark that we've been doing. We're going to wrap up chapter 12 today. And the passage that we are looking at concludes Jesus' public ministry before His arrest and crucifixion. And in so doing, he's going to wrap up a sharp distinction between the religious leaders who claim to be men of God, but want his son dead, and a person whose heart truly is for God. And after this encounter, Jesus will retreat with his disciples into some private moments before he heads to the cross. 
You and I desire to live lives that honor Jesus. And so we ask, in this time of historical significance and significant temptation in which we live, what does it look like to be people who have hearts truly for God? To be people of faith. You've heard of some of the real things we're facing right now at Cornerstone Church in our pastoral prayer and, and even in our, our scripture reading and, and as Bill had mentioned. There are things right now that we are weeping together about. We weep about battling through another round of treatment for a cancer that once acted like it had gone away. We weep being in the midst of a long, slow recovery from Guillain-Barre. We weep that there are those who are being still locked down to different degrees from each other. We leap, we weep that there are those who have lost jobs or whose jobs are in jeopardy. We weep that there are those who still are vulnerable to this disease. We weep that there are those who are standing by their child's hospital bed, powerless to fix things. We weep that once again our hearts have been broken by sin's destructive power. Once again, horrified and saddened by wickedness. We live in trying times. So we got to ask, what does it look like to trust God in the face of all these things? This is the question we Christians have to address in our lives. And it doesn't just do to say, just trust God without putting specifics on what that means. Yes, I want to trust God. What does it look like in my life? It's a crucial question for each of us. Well, God is showing us today His perspective on what trusting God looks like. And with His perspective and by His grace, our prayers and our actions can demonstrate that we do have faith in Him. And wouldn't that be an encouragement to our souls? So let's turn to Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And let's hear the Lord's take on these things. Jesus says, beginning in verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of God for us. Two very different states of the heart on display in our text. And it is very clear which one Jesus commends. And so I think his point for us today, therefore, is the Lord wants us to trust in him. We're going to begin by looking at verses 38 through 40, seeing how it looks when people work hard in their own power to gain the world's promise of security and meaning. So the first point is working hard to trust in the world. Over the past several weeks, we have reviewed Jesus being challenged by different groups of the religious authorities of the day. We've seen chief priests and elders question his authority. We've seen Pharisees try to undermine him on the topic of paying taxes. We've seen Sadducees try to trap him with a riddle about resurrection. We've seen the scribes take him on in understanding of the Scriptures. Well, these groups were supposed to be the best and the brightest that Israel had to offer. Experts in the law, specialists in ceremony and practical living, keepers of the temple and of tradition. These guys worked hard to attain positions of honor and security. But what Jesus revealed, however, is only how far human cleverness and ingenuity alone can take you. And now he's going to turn And he's going to trim down not only their intellectual standing, but he's going to remove their moral authority as well. And we're going to find out that that's their biggest problem. He's going to call them out. Because instead of loving the Lord and loving their neighbors, what they show is they really only love themselves. And in loving themselves... They actually showed that they hated God. So Mark, in his typical straight-to-the-point, no-frills kind of way, relates Jesus' charges of hypocrisy against them, as we heard. Now, if you want the full treatment, check out Matthew 23. You probably know the text. Woe to you, hypocrites! washing the outside of cups, but leaving the inside dirty. 
whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, etc., etc. You know the text. But let's look carefully at Mark's brief but devastating version. Here's what Jesus points out and Mark relates. First, these guys loved to draw attention to themselves. You know, what we wear makes a statement. We dress differently according to particularly context that, that we're in. We're making a statement where we go based on how we adorn ourselves. Well, the statement that they made with the way that they dressed was not to honor the Lord or His purposes, but to honor themselves. Long robes that Jesus referred to had to do with ceremonial garments worn during prayer times. That's perfectly appropriate. But when did these guys like to wear long robes? As they're cruising around the marketplace. That's weird. It's, it's like astronauts wearing spacesuits to the target. You know, maybe doing their kind of moon walking around. You know, hey, I'm an astronaut. Why do this? So people would see them. They would notice them. They would admire them. The scribes wanted the people to recognize them and think of them in the very best light. They might even come up and greet them and, and say flattering things. They craved attention and affirmation of the world, which gave them a sense of security and value. And they liked not only to be known, but also to receive special treatment. Best seats in the synagogue? Mine. Places of honor at feasts? Don't mind if I do. It was all about securing a place for themselves, for these guys. They were so caught up in their favored status that they didn't even care that widows were going destitute in service to them. They paid lip service to caring for them with long, flowery prayers, but they weren't lifting a finger to help in practical, loving ways. And the widows were losing their homes. You can imagine the Apostle James sitting there and listening to Jesus point these things out. And you can imagine that he was informed by seeing this hypocrisy at work. And later, no doubt, the Holy Spirit used these memories and these lessons to help him to write his epistle when he spoke of supposed faith that wasn't accompanied by works. It's an oxymoron. What good is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
is what he asked in his epistle. And don't you imagine that he was thinking of these scribes on that day. Lots of smart folks can memorize texts and even get certified as experts without having hearts actually affected by what they've learned. Without a heart transformed by the Lord, these things are futile. It isn't a living faith. And in the end, this graceless human effort is not going to cut it. Human effort, unaided by grace, but instead affected by, even driven by sin, cannot glorify God and will inevitably do others harm. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, says Romans 8. The pitiful end result of the religious leaders' graceless striving for the world's approval is condemnation. It's sobering. It's sobering because here's what we must recognize. That there may be people today hearing this who find that in some way this describes their hearts. There may be people here today who aren't unbelievers, but Christians who still say, I, I can see this in my flesh to some degree. In some way, I'm being convicted that I'm trusting the world's answers and false security. Jesus is calling you today. He challenged the religious leaders. They dug in their heels. But it doesn't have to be that way. If He's challenging you, listen to this. He has grace for you, for your heart to change. The Lord wants you to trust in Him. Hear a great promise in Jesus' challenge today. Jesus walks away from observing these scribes going about their business. And He takes a seat outside um, by the temple treasury where he gets to point out a vastly different example to the disciples. An example that was indeed very pleasing for him to see. So our second point comes from verses 41 through 44, working hard to trust in God. So contrast the self-aggrandizing and self-reliant scribes with this dear woman and see the crucial lesson our Lord is teaching the disciples and us. On the one hand, motivated by status and prestige and comfort and ease, there were those who worked hard to secure a place of worldly power. 
Their circumstances were easy, but they pointed to disaster. On the other hand, motivated by the love that she has received from God and wanting to do good in any meager way that she might, there was one whose hope was found in God's promise of security and joy, who endured hard things by the strength of God's grace. Her circumstances were far from easy, but they pointed to glory. So you can see why this text isn't primarily a text about tithing or money. Coming on the heels of his critique of the religious leaders, it follows that Jesus would then provide the disciples with a gracious example. The poor widow must be read as an accompaniment to the religious leaders' texts. Now certainly, what we do with the finances God provides us may be a corollary takeaway from this text. And if you want to put two pennies in the box on the way out, that's cool. (laughs) But I think the main point is the huge, discernible difference between striving in one's own self-serving efforts to trust in the world and relying on God's grace to trust Him. And then he tells us more about this wonderful, wonderful saint. So what do we know about Jesus' second example, the poor widow? These next few verses are just packed with things to learn about her and the implications for us. And we're going to follow in sequence Jesus' own observations as he makes them. The first thing I want to point out is that among many others, Jesus saw her. Do not overlook the fact that the Lord himself had his eyes upon this dear lady. Undoubtedly, she went through her earthly life very aware that in the world's eyes she was of little consequence, not an important or influential person. Her situation was pitiable, her resources scarce. She's the kind of person people disregard. And can't you imagine she felt that? Yet, the Lord of life Himself pointed her out among all the inhabitants of the entire earth as an example to be emulated by the disciples. She probably didn't live long enough to hear about a gospel of Mark being written in which she was mentioned. But I bet she heard about this encounter with the Lord when she arrived in heaven. Don't you want to see her one day and say, I read about you? 
O blessed woman. Now, not only did he notice her, he knew her. He pointed out things about her challenges. Like, for example, that she was poor. And it would be easy to look upon someone and say, it seems like that person might be a poor person. But he knew the intimate details of how poor. She could have come in and dropped her two copper coins out of a zillion copper coins that she had back at home. But he knew precisely, exactly, intimately her situation. And when she put her two copper coins, he knew that was all she had. He also knew she was a widow. Two things to note here. Being a widow, that means she was a she. Being a woman was another way this person was not a person of worldly power. She didn't sleep well at night because her place in society was easy. She wouldn't think of herself as one who could call the shots really virtually in any aspect of her life. She couldn't pull herself up by her bootstraps. Society wouldn't even let her have boots. And second, in human terms, the person who did provide for her and cared for her was gone. She no longer had the husband who once provided for her, protected her, loved her. She was a person who was made to be nourished and cherished. And the man called by God to do that for her was gone. But I'm sure her desire to experience that care was not. So her circumstances hard. And though she may not have been aware that the incarnate Lord was watching her in that place that day, you know what it seems like? It seems like she may just have had a very strong sense that her God watched over her everywhere all the time. She had faith. So she acted in faith. She did things that demonstrated her faith. Here's what she did. She came to the temple. The place she knew that God had ordained in a unique way in which to be worshipped and from which He would pour out His grace was where she wanted to be. She would honor God with her stewardship of money, and she would cry out to Him from this special place for for His care. So she gives of herself totally. So what she's giving in that moment 
is spiritual worship. Romans 12 begins with talking about offering to God your spiritual worship. I offer to you myself the entirety of my being. This is my spiritual worship. So what she's saying in that moment when she dropped her two small coins in the treasury, here, Lord, I hope this gets you over the top in your fundraising. Or, I present to you, O Lord, myself, my soul, my body, to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. I rather think it was the latter. Her total trust in the Lord is just getting expressed in the total giving of her livelihood. So no, I don't think this is just a money text. Jesus, I don't think, was treating it as just a money text. He, he understood practicalities and he understood math. The temple needs funds to do its work and rich people have more funds available to give and they did. So practically speaking, the poor widow did not give more than the rich folks. But that doesn't make Jesus' statement wrong. Because this is so much more than just practicalities and math. The money is just representative. This is about trust. This is about spiritual worship. This she gave in full. So God makes very clear in Psalm 50 that He has plenty already without our offerings or donations. He does not need to come begging to us. But here's what God does seem to really be interested in and excited when He sees. He seems very excited when He sees faith. And when he sees faith being exercised, it's a gift from him given to us. And he loves seeing that in us. And he loves seeing us put it to work. He gives us grace to build our faith and he watches for us to glorify him as that faith gets expressed as trust. So he also says in Psalm 50, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's about trust. So Jesus isn't making the point that you need to up your giving to please God. Jesus is making the point that as you trust God, it is dear to him to observe Bill mentioned Luke 18, and he, and he mentioned this God who will bring about justice. It's so hopeful, so encouraging to think on that. And the way that that story ends, I think is fascinating. The last line of that, of that parable says, 
nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So as we are seeking to try to trust the Lord, and as we are waiting for His justice to come, should the Son of Man show up, will He find us trusting in this God who will bring justice? Are we trusting in this God who will bring healing? Are we trusting in this God who will make all things right? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Oh God, may it be so. Oh God, may it be so. Because the Lord wants us to trust in Him. So what do we make of all this for our own lives? We talked about putting details to things early on. Let's do that. Let's put some details in the circumstances that we face right now that call us to trust in God, what does it look like? We've talked about the trials that we're all facing right now, and, and there are others that you are weeping about too. Through all these things, the Lord is calling us to Himself, and He is offering for us to receive grace so that we may go through these trials in a gracious way. He's calling us to pray and to ask Him for that grace to respond. Draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to you. He is eager to give mercy and grace in time of need so that we might have faith to glorify Him in the circumstances we face. His grace does this. His grace empowers us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The religious leaders refused that grace. The poor widow received that grace, and so can we. And so specifically, let's put, let's put legs on this idea that we can love the Lord our God. So, loving God means being mindful of Him. By God's grace, we can think of Him first in all things. Whatever we face by His grace, we can be thinking about who He is and what He's like. And that will make all the difference. We can remember His love and mercy expressed to you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. When I face difficulties in this world, does it make a difference to think that the God of the universe sent His Son to save me? It makes all the difference. We can remember His kindness expressed to us in giving us the Holy Spirit who comforts us, shows us the truth. I can know what's true because God Himself resides within me. How kind is that? 
He's taken up residence so that He can guide me, show me the truth, remind me of Jesus. This is what grace does. This is what faith looks like. We can remember His goodness in the promises He has made to us because of Christ. And so let's, let's consider nothing apart from Him. Yes, I'm vulnerable. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I'm oppressed. Yes, I'm misunderstood. Yes, I'm hurting. But by God's grace, I can consider Him in the midst of those things. So loving God means engaging with your heavenly Father about all these things. Go to His temple and offer Him your life in worship and trust. Dedicate yourself to Him and ask for His grace to persevere. Ask Him to help you to stand, to be strong, and to follow His ways, not the world's. Ask Him for the words of life for yourself and to share with the people you love. He hears you and He will carry you through these trials. Let's engage with Him. Let's remember Him. Let's engage with Him. Loving God means embracing the promise that your grace-fueled response to your suffering and trials glorifies God and He cares. Embrace this promise. How you graciously respond in these times, listen to this, will mean receiving these words one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is astounding. By His grace that builds our faith, we can respond to this life in a way where He is going to one day commend us. You've got to be kidding me. How can that deal get any better? So how do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? By remembering Him. By engaging with Him. Offering Him my life and receiving His grace to live by. And faith means loving my neighbor. So how do I love my neighbor, especially one who is suffering? Be there. Be there. Listen. And weep. And when the time is right, be ready to act and to speak words of grace. There are a million practical things we can do for each other and every person is best served according to that person's individual needs. So talk with each other. Ask for practical ways to serve. Present ideas to see if they would be helpful. But you know what? There's something else that is universal 
and is always needed. It doesn't have to be individually tailored. This is universal for us all. We have a potent opportunity in times like this to point others to the love of God. Hurting people need that like nothing else. Just as you are served by God's comfort and care, so are they. Talk about the love of the Father who sent His Son to save people like us and to secure for us an eternal future with Him. Talk about the love of the Son who set aside His glory with the Father to live as one of us, to face temptation and suffering, persecution and oppression, pain and death, so that now we would have one who truly understands our suffering and grief because He's faced them too. Talk about the love of the Spirit who lives within us. He is the giver of life and the author of God's revealed Word. And He comforts and guides us in the way of truth. And talk about the love of God's people, the church. An imperfect bunch of folks who nevertheless are united in the love of God and who truly seek to love one another by sharing what they've received. Love your neighbor by pointing them to the love of God. Trusting God looks like that. It looks like taking Him at His word that loving Him and others is the good path. And He has grace for us to do that very thing. So let's cry out to Him and rest in that. Knowing that come what may, these things are sure and good. The Lord wants us to trust Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, You are faithful. You are good. And for us to be invited into Your glory is amazing. Thank You, Lord, that You would speak to us, that You would point us toward faith, and that Your promise to give grace to build that faith is sure. Lord, draw near to us. Make us very aware of Your nearness. Make us very aware that You are inclined toward us. You love us. Stir in our hearts, Lord, faith that we may go out from here and encounter all the circumstances that we face. Empowered. Encouraged energized, bold for your glory. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jeff Hodgson during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 694 4356. 
We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.